I think there comes a time in all of our lives where we need to move past what I would call a flannel graph faith. Anybody remember flannel graphs? You see those in Sunday school? Yeah, so history lesson for those of you that don't know. For almost a century, the church of Jesus Christ decided that the best way to teach children stories of the Bible was to have little figures cut out of sticky fabric that we would then stick to backgrounds and tell dynamic stories. So here's, here's what's really cool about flannel graph today, is if you bust it out, kids have never seen it, so it is revolutionary technology. And they're like, wait, which app did you use to get it to stick like that? We're like, no, there's no app, it's just physics. And so you give them, you know, the little flannel figure and they can go up and they can stick it on there. But for many of us, uh, we learned about faith from Sunday school. And we learned about faith the way that you do when you're a kid. Um, we learned things like God lives in heaven, which is mostly true. Think about that for a second. Is God just in heaven? These are what I call the necessary heresies of Sunday school, where we teach you stuff, but when you grow up, you realize that there's layers to this. There is perhaps a lot more. And, and what I wholeheartedly believe is many times when I see um, young people who they grow up in youth group, they go to college, they start to think for themselves, and they ask some questions and I have seen people take the real life questions of life and put them, put that weight on a flannel graph faith. And do you know what happens when you do that? It snaps. Because the real world that we live in is complicated, it is painful, it is difficult, but it's also joyful and it's also hopeful. There's a lot of good stuff in it. And it's also incomplete because it won't completely satisfy us. And it is really hard to communicate all that with a flannel graph. So when I was about 16 um, was when I started really asking questions of my faith and really like making it my own. And that's when I started to think about the cross of Jesus in three dimensions. And there was an interesting thing that happened just in Christian pop culture at that time, which is kind of crazy that as Christians, like we have our own little pop culture where stuff happens or like you make a reference to Veggie Tales and then everyone else who didn't grow up in church is like, what do you mean you watched like CGI animation of talking vegetables telling you how to live your life? That sounds really weird, Andrew. And now maybe that explains why I am the way I am. But uh, so... But so at this moment in Christian pop culture, um, due to, in part, the film The Passion of the Christ, anybody seen that one? Seen Passion of the Christ? It's rough, right? It's hard. It was probably one of the first times that we had put to film some of the brutality of what happened in the crucifixion. And are there some parts in The Passion of the Christ that they did not put on the flannel graph when you were in Sunday school? Yes. And, and at that time, there was also some kind of grungy, punk rock versions of faith 
Um, and, and when 16-year-old Andrew was trying to ask some big questions about Jesus and be like, okay, so what, what can support the questions that I have about everyday life? There was a church in Seattle called Mars Hill, and they are no longer in existence. There's water, bridges under it, all that stuff. But um, I will forever be grateful for the way that in my life, when I needed resources, I needed to see a version of Jesus that had something to say to the world that I lived in all the way back in 2010. And, and can, has the world gotten any simpler since then? No, absolutely not. But I will forever be grateful for the version of Jesus that I saw, which this was a very like cross-focused sort of worship. Like there was this this book called Death by Love, which I bought, uh, I pre-ordered a theology textbook, because that's something you do when you're me. Uh, but this book showed up, and 16-year-old Andrew was like, I really want to know Jesus. I got a lot of big questions. And, and this book is, each chapter is uh, something that Jesus accomplished on the cross, and then the way that that impacts real life. The way that that impacts real life. And I can tell you, I couldn't handle it at 16. I bounced off of it. I, I grabbed the book and I was like, I'm excited to read this. And about halfway through chapter two, I was like, oh my gosh, this is really scary. Is this what adult life is like? The answer is yes, that's what adult life is like. But the cross of Jesus is something that we need to be able to see in three dimensions because it is a multifaceted Thing. So when, when I was doing children's ministry, um, we would explain what Jesus did on the cross with this picture. So I've got, there's a dark heart, and that represents the fact that many of us, all of us in fact, is what the Bible would say, um, have sinned. And we have participated in darkness in our world. And Jesus dies on the cross, sheds his blood, that's why the cross is red, and that purifies our hearts, right? If we put our trust in Jesus, then our hearts are clean and we can go to heaven, which is like eternal Disneyland. Let's go. It's great. And, and this is true. The, the gospel is definitely not less than this. What we believe about Jesus, why we put a cross on the back of Dallas Church, is definitely not less than this. But I think that what the biblical authors had in mind when they wrote these stories was so much more. We're, we're partnered with youth group right now with the Dallas Alliance Church. Um, go figure, they still believe in Jesus too, right? It's, you know. But we're working together, doing one kind of youth ministry, and at their church, um, they don't just have the cross, they have a couple symbols as their logo. So they have the cross, which teaches Jesus as Savior. They have... Um, one of these is called a laver, and one of them is called a pitcher, and I don't know which one's which, but there's a picture of the stuff. And so, sanctifier, healer, and Jesus is the king. Is that true? It's not a trick question. Yes, yes. Like this, this is the, the biblical authors would affirm this. This is what they have in mind. But actually, I think this is too simple of a diagram. Let's show the Andrew version. Here you go. These are all of the things that Matthew has in mind when he is describing what Jesus does on the cross to save humanity. There's a reason the crucifixion is at the end of the book. 
it's pretty much the climax. We spent a year in Matthew, all the way back in January. Maybe some of you are like, whoa, do, do you guys know that there are other books in the Bible? Yes, we know that. Come back next year. We will preach out of them then. Yes. But we thought, well, what, what would happen to us as a church and as a community of God if we sat with the teachings of Jesus? If we looked at the life of Jesus for a year and just really took it as it came through the Gospel of Matthew, would that change us? And maybe you can think about in your heart, is there a way you're different than in January? Egad, I hope so, right? Like, are we being changed to be more like the God that we love? So here's what I want to do today. I'm in, a, I'm in a rough text of scripture, Matthew 27. It gets real heavy really fast, and it kind of doesn't let up. And there's not as many opportunities for Andrew to crack his little jokes that makes everybody smile. And that's okay. Because this is, this is real life. This is serious stuff. And I think we see really clearly in the sacrifice of Jesus, the love of God revealed for us. So let's pray and see what God would have to say to us today. Father God, we love you so much, and you love us more. God, we pray that you would shape us, you would show us what it means to be your people, to be people of the cross, to be people who follow a crucified Savior. God, let us be your people as we go about our weeks. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the, the lens that we're looking through on some of this is with the prophecy from Isaiah 53, in which hundreds of years before Jesus, it was said that there would come a suffering servant and that he would be pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace would be on him, and by his wounds we are healed. It also said that he would be silent, that as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he would not open his mouth. And so Jesus has been arrested, he's been betrayed by Judas, and his BFF Peter has said, I don't even know him. In front of the high priest, Jesus was pressured to the point where he was like, will you just tell me if you are the Son of God, the Messiah? And Jesus says, well, you're the one who keeps saying it. And Jesus said, I'm not saying I'm the, the Son of God, but, you know, in Daniel chapter 7, when it said that the Son of Man would come on the clouds and sit at the right hand of God, yeah, that's me. And so, after that, Jesus is taken to the governor Pilate because the Jewish leaders, they cannot condemn him to death. They need the Roman governor to do that. So now, verse 11 of chapter 27, now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, you say so. This conversation seems familiar, right? It's what just happened. He says, are you the one who's going to claim that he is the Messiah and the true ruler of the Jewish people. And think about this for a minute, okay? You've got, you've got the, the representative of the most powerful government in the world, and he's face-to-face -face with a peasant carpenter-turned-rabbi who's got 
what we call the smelly football team of 12 disciples that follows him around everywhere. And he looks at Jesus and goes, so are you actually the king of this place? And what do we know? Absolutely yes. But does that match with what, if you just were like taking a snapshot of this, like if you, you weren't a Christian, I just grabbed a snapshot and was like, okay, there's the governor, there's the peasant who's in charge of the situation. But the reality is something different. The reality flips it. And that's why we say that the kingdom of Jesus is an upside-down kingdom. And so while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, Jesus did not answer. And then Pilate said to him, don't you hear how much they're testifying against you? But he didn't answer even one charge. So the governor was amazed. Uh, the, the rules in Rome said that if you did not answer the charge, you were assumed guilty. If you don't give a defense, you're guilty. And so is Jesus guilty? It's kind of interesting because he's, he's definitely guilty of being Jesus, right? He's not guilty of doing anything wrong. And that's Pilate's problem. He can't find a really good reason to give Jesus over to execution. Verse 15 at the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner that they wanted. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, who is it that you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew it was because of envy that they handed him over. Pilate knows he's getting played. And he knows that Jesus doesn't really deserve to be crucified. And he's, he's kind of trying to give them a way out. And so he offers up this guy named Barabbas. And, and I remember as a kid in my flannel graph and animated movie days, uh, there was a cartoon where Barabbas just looks like this really slimy kind of guy, like in the corner. They bring him out, and they say, some Bible translations say he is a murderer. Well, Barabbas is a rebel. He's an insurrectionist. He is part of the, the, the leader of this rebel band. He is everything that Jesus is being accused of being. And Pilate puts up Barabbas and says, okay, guys, you get to pick. You get to pick who's going to go free. And what do they choose? They choose Barabbas. In some ways, Barabbas is the first antichrist. I, I've talked with people many times, and they've asked me questions like, okay, Andrew, where, where does the antichrist come from? Do we have one right now? Is he in Russia? Is he in Ukraine? Is he in the U.S.? Where is he at? Because we're thinking of one like satanic figure, and we're really more shaped by horror movies when we think about the Antichrist than we are of the Bible. Because the way that the Bible describes the word ante means the one beside, the alternative to, the other option. And Barabbas is put up as the other option. The people get to pick Jesus or this way, the upside down kingdom or the rebel with the sword. And what do they choose? They choose Barabbas. And, and the good news is that as um, Americans in the 21st century who were not present in this situation, we never choose something in the place of Jesus, right? We never pursue our own comfort, our own entertainment, our own monetary success. We never let that drive our decision-making more than Jesus, right? 
First service wasn't convicted about that either. Okay, let's keep trucking. So, so Pilate's wife tells him that um, she just had a dream. She says, have nothing to do with the righteous man. For today, I have suffered terribly in a dream because of him. And, and Matthew includes that to show that there are rumblings in the cosmic realm. This is not a normal day at the office for Pilate. There is something deeper going on here. And the chief priests and the elders, however, they persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. And the governor asked them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, they answered. Pilate asked them, what should I do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And think about the train of logic on this. What do you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? What was the plan for Jesus, who is called the Christ? He's crucified. Jesus knew that was going to happen. For the joy set before him, he went through this. Jesus is trusting the story in the middle of suffering. And then Pilate says, well, why? What has Jesus done wrong? And they don't even listen. They just shout over him, crucify him. And then Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead. So he took some water. He washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. And that's heavy. That's rough. That's real. And in some ways, what this shows us, the lens that it would show us about what is accomplished on the cross is that we are all Barabbas. We are all taken captive. Uh, there's this thing in the Bible called sin, and that is the little tiny word for a big, huge concept about evil in the world. Do you believe there's evil in the world? I normally don't have a problem convincing people of that fact, right? We look out and we see like there are, there are systems, and there's just this fascinating thing with humans where our potential for good is multiplied when we get together, and our potential for evil is also multiplied when we get together and do evil. And we've all of us crossed a line, somewhere along the line. If you, if you look at your life, like there are the moments where like, I wish I could take back what I said. I wish I could undo that. And the cross of Jesus, when we see it in three dimensions, it can handle that. It can support that weight. The weight of the guilt that we live with, the weight of the addictions that we keep going back to, that hold us down, the weight of the wounds of what has been done to us that we will forever carry. And God never looks at sin and says, well, it's okay. Because in the cross of Jesus, God says, we can be okay. Not that it's okay, we can be okay. That's a cross in three dimensions. And the story of the Bible is the story of people being freed from the prison of sin and evil. 
Barabbas was a prisoner, and with the blood of Jesus, his freedom is bought. It's purchased. This was, a, this was a very normal thing in the ancient world. If you were taken captive or you were, you were a slave, or maybe you just got into really deep, they didn't have credit cards, but really deep consumer debt, you could sell yourself to pay for it. And then you would have a redeemer who is someone who loves you enough to come in and pay the price to let you go free. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus is our redemption. Jesus is our ransom. In Ephesians 1.7, when Paul is trying to explain to the church about the reality that they live in, he says, if you put your faith in Jesus, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And so when you've got something holding your back, or when you've got guilt popping back up, or you can't live with that thing from your past, we might just have to ask which voice is saying that. Is that the voice of Jesus that says, I, I paid for that? That I have riches of grace? Or is that the voice of something else? And so through Jesus, we have the ability to be redeemed from the things that hold us back. We have the ability to be redeemed from addictions, we have ability to be redeemed from just the normal stuff that we all live with that we don't call out as really toxic, like relying on ourselves or being workaholics or trying to be self-sufficient or maybe even just trying to have a plastic exterior that says, hey, church, don't worry, I'm okay. But then we all come together and take communion and say, I'm really not okay. I'm super broken and I need Jesus to make me better. This is what Paul says to the church in 1 Corinthians. He says, don't you realize that you were bought with a price? Didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid for with a high price? And in Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But that's not the end of it. Uh, Jesus is taken by the Romans, and he is flogged. And if you've seen the Passion of the Christ, you know that that's really rough. That, that it was intense, and there's a reason that we censor that scene for the flannel graphs. Because it's, it's terrible, and it's hard. When my dad watched the Passion of the Christ, I was 12 years old, and my dad watches this movie, at the movie theater, and he comes home. I, I didn't even know what was going on. I just walk in. My dad is face down in the living room and praying and just so blown away by the sacrifice of Jesus. And, and I don't know what was going on. I don't know what business he was doing with the Lord. But I think, that's, I think that's a good response to that because it's really real. It's really true. So then the governor's soldiers, they take Jesus into the governor's residence. They gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, placed a staff in his right hand, and they knelt down before him. 
And they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Jesus finally gets a crown in our story of Matthew. But this is an upside-down coronation. This is not exaltation. This is humiliation. They're, they're falling on their knees in front of him, and, and in mockery they say, Hail, King Jesus. And then they took him away to crucify him. And that's the end of my assigned text today. So if you're mad that this sermon's a downer, just take it up with Ben. Uh, no, here's, I, I, I can't actually leave it there, right? We know. We, we know the end of this story. We know that Jesus is taken away. He is crucified on the cross. And three days later, when they go to check out the tomb, it is empty. Jesus is not dead. He tramples over death by suffering and submitting to death. And in that, Jesus gives victory. And so this is a really weird text for me to pull out and say, okay, here's the answer. Theologically, Jesus is king of the world, and he is bigger and victorious over any situation that you're facing right now. And that is exactly the point I want to make. Because Matthew is showing us in an upside-down way, in a way that we would not expect or realize, that King Jesus is victorious over darkness in the world. Because if we flip way ahead to the end of the book in Revelation, all of a sudden, there's a bunch of Romans. And they're on their knees before King Jesus. They are worshiping him, except this time they're doing it for real. Because in this moment, Jesus provides a way for us all to deal with our darkness, to follow God and be his people. And that's actually a message of hope. That's, that's a beautiful thing. In the way the theologians would say it is they would call it Christus Victor, meaning that Jesus is victorious both over demonic powers that would be at work in the cosmic realm and political powers that would put themselves in opposition to the way of God. And that's the story of the Bible. So if you, if you feel like you look at the world and you're like, there are political powers that are in opposition to the kingdom of God. I'm like, I know. I've been telling you about it. But, that, but it, that, that's true. That's really real. That's the world we live in. And the cross gives us a framework for how to deal with that. Because through suffering and faithfulness to God, Jesus has victory over these powers. Here's what Colossians said about this very story. It says that when Jesus dies on the cross, it says that he has disarmed the powers of and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The darkness that is at play in the Romans, the darkness that is at play around Jesus in the middle of this situation, it lost. And the darkness that is at play in the places where we work, in our family legacies, in just the ickiness of our soul that keeps popping back up and we don't know what to deal with. Jesus is victorious. And so we can say to temptation, we can say to despair, we're like, you already lost. 
Because what Colossians says is that we have been rescued and brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So when I was a 16-year-old boy, uh, really into all of these kind of grungy, maybe some gory depictions of, of the cross of Jesus, I was running slides at my church, which is obviously you know, the most important, highest position that happens to someone at church. Um, but I was running slides in the back. And for communion, I had picked this really cool picture of Jesus on the cross. I was like, this is going to bring people to their knees. They're going to repent. They're going to come to Jesus in the middle of it just because I picked this slide. It's great. And my pastor comes up, and he pats me on the back. And Neil Johnston looks me in the eye and says, Andrew, we don't leave Jesus on the cross. Because he's risen. We live in victory. And so... We're looking at the dark parts of the crucifixion story because those are stories of hope. And the big idea, I think what we should all do as a church, is we should kneel before King Jesus. In our life, we declare Jesus as Lord. And we follow that way. And that might mean going through difficult times. That might mean staying faithful to the story of God in suffering. That might mean forgiving other people because God forgave them first. That might mean that we forgive ourselves because we don't get to stand on the throne and judge ourselves and say, okay, so God forgave me for that, but I just, I think I know better. We don't do that. And maybe this pushes us to find places in where we work, where we live, where we do life, where we say that, that area is not submitted to the lordship of Jesus. And so we bring light. We do good. We serve others. We show them the Jesus way. And we invite them to come with us. Because when we do that, we make Jesus king. Let's pray. Father God. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Provide for us, meet our needs, Jesus, because we're trusting you. Forgive us for the things we have done wrong. Help us to be forgiving to the people who have done things to us. Yours is the power and the glory forever and ever. And all God's children said, amen.